welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is the Tuesday Not So Deep Dive episode for CCM Plus or Chit Chat Money Plus subscribers. If you're a subscriber, thank you for listening to this episode and supporting Chit Chat Money. If you are on Apple Podcasts and you want the written reports that we may reference in this and that go in conjunction with these audio or not audio with the podcast, email us your email at chitchatmoneypodcast at gmail.com. The spelling will be in the show notes. I'll say that again. If you're on Apple Podcasts and you have not emailed us, uh, whatever your email would you want to get signed up for the premium research service that goes along with your CCM Plus subscription, basically just show notes and charts to go along with this episode to help visualize and see all the numbers, email us at chitchatmoneypodcast at gmail.com. All right, Ryan, today we're talking Ubisoft a multinational gaming publisher with a long history and kind of an exciting one. We're hitting our gaming theme this month. Just to tease it out, we're going to be doing Ubisoft, Xbox, oh, I'm forgetting, Capcom. Rovio. Rovio, which is a mobile publisher, small one. And then we're going to do an Arch Capital episode on Electronic Arts. Check out the schedule on our Twitter if you want to see that. But let's introduce Ubisoft. Ryan, what do they do and what is the history of the business? Ubisoft is a digital entertainment company you kind of already alluded to what they do they it's comprised of dozens of different video game development studios and there are some that like basically work on the same games but they just do them in different geographies so there's a lot of overlap with the studios but they're located all around the globe so they have their own little teams um and ubisoft is home to several famous franchises that itself that that they own themselves so they do some license work but then they also have their own franchises and some of their own franchises include assassin's creed that's probably the one most people are familiar with far cry rainbow six tom clancy um and tom clancy has a bunch of different games as well I believe. But yeah and that's based if you're a reader of his novels that's they they have the agreement with uh we don't need to go into the details it's not that important but the the tom clancy novels i believe is is where they're getting that but that's kind of what they they kind of own that stuff um and they do all the tom clancy stuff and then as i mentioned they do some licensed development on behalf of other companies so um one one uh game that they've been working on lately is mario plus rabbids um if you have a switch you've maybe seen this game before um it kind of includes a lot of the mario characters but it also has these new rabid characters um but it, it's kind of licensing other companies ip yeah um, and rabbits are a uh, ubisoft game so it's like a combo of nintendo stuff plus rabbits um but you know it's on the nintendo switch because that's what nintendo keeps everything you can't Mario anywhere else with a switch. Right. And then the the company is the largest European game developer, but they still generate the bulk of their sales in North America. So they sell everywhere, but like I said, largest in Europe. And then despite the company really 
their origins were kind of in the PC market. That's where a lot of their games f- were first played. Now it's pretty much all, well, not all, 60% of their revenue comes from consoles. Um, and then the second largest is still PCs, I think at about 25%. And then they've got a tiny mobile business, but the majority of this is big, like like longer development cycles for big console pc based games it's not it's not really a mobile driven business although they do have 2048 which is kind of a popular uh mobile game but that's kind of besides the point um and then within its most popular brand assassin's creed the actual game typically costs at at once it's first launched it's upwards of $60 per game but then users can also make um in-game purchases to improve like their character's outfit or the the ship that uh, they use in Assassin's Creed. It, it kind of varies depending on the game and, and the different story. Um, however, Ubisoft doesn't actually break out what percentage, what percentage of its sales come from microtransactions versus actual game purchases. It seems that Ubisoft generates more, they are more tied to the actual game cycle. So it's not quite as driven by microtransactions as some other game developers. And that's kind of just the nature of their games. A lot of these are very, um, they're, they're story-based games. You're kind of fulfilling this, uh, you're, you're following this arc with the character. There isn't as much need for like that live services component. Although now, the gamers are still very upset that they have the microtransactions. Uh, so I guess they get the, they can't have, uh, Yeah, they're not benefiting from them as much as maybe a you know a grand theft auto or a fifa but they're still you know they still get the complaints and what's interesting is assassin's creed games were coming out at a much quicker pace than say some of the other you know premium story mode games i think like almost once a year at one point which we can discuss the benefits or positives that later in the show or what do you think the right strategy is but that was kind of you know instead of buying one game, playing it for five years, there's all these new games coming out that you'd maybe spend $60 on, although they haven't had a game. I don't know the exact schedule. Now they haven't had a game for a while, and they're kind of maybe seeing the success of some of those other companies that release one you know, large game every five years, and maybe they're trying to transition to that. Right, and these are this these are brands that have been around for a long time and they've just basically done new iterations i think some of these have been around 20 plus years far cry is now on far cry 6 it has the character from breaking bad um as uh, in the new one yeah exactly. antagonist i don't know if it yeah it's the same they they got that actor i don't know i can't remember if it was the exact same like character from breaking bad but it's the same actor who was kind of in the game as the as the bad evil boss it's a similar it. character. I think there's uh, it's sort of this drug lord in a South American. The commercials country. look good. Yeah, I never played it. The commercials look great. Um, and Assassin's Creed, I think, just celebrated its 15th year anniversary. So fairly old, but not as old as some of the older franchises. Right. And then as far as history goes, the Ubisoft was actually started as a family business that belonged. And we're going to talk about these this family a little bit to the Guimonts. Guimonts. It's a, it's a right. French family. Yeah. Um, and basically the business was just selling parts to farmers in the Brittany province of France. However, it was run by the parents initially. And then once the sons, there's five sons graduated college, they went kind of worked for the, the, the family business. And then around the 1980s, they began to expand into other products. So they began selling computer and hardware software or com- yeah, computer hardware and software. And then 
they basically buying computer hardware or software was much much more expensive in France than it was in the US. So they were basically just being a distributor of US hardware, uh, US computer hardware and software in France. And they do mail orders for that. And then they started this th- around that 85, 84 time frame, gaming was becoming really popular. And they said, all right, we can do the same thing around uh, the gaming market. And so they tried to capitalize on that. Um, and they were able to kind of replicate that computer hardware software for the video game market because they already had the distribution points and the distribution business and understanding uh, around Europe. And so um, they actually started their own company. The mom said, if you guys want to do this, you can start your own company. I believe it was called, uh, let me get it right. The Guillemont Informatic uh, was was the name of the company at the time. But once they moved into games, they actually changed the name to, it was two words, Ubi and Soft. I forget what the origins of that were for. I think part of it was they just liked the name. Um, but they moved into this chateau in sort of a outside of Paris. So it wasn't in like the downtown market. And part of the allure or the the goal with moving into the chateau was to attract developers to like this really nice place to work. Um, and that actually worked fairly well. And it kind of springboarded them into the video game development market. Uh, at the time, it was kind of a combination of partnerships to distribute games outside of the U.S. while also internally trying to develop their own games. Um, and then there's this podcast, and uh, we're gonna we have it in our links to to go listen to, but that goes through its whole history. Um, but basically, they acquired a bunch of different studios, smaller studios all around the globe, and those gl- those different studios had huge hits. Um, and basically struck gold with some of the franchises that we've already mentioned. Am I, you've, you've listened to that podcast as well. Am I missing any big parts of the history? Yeah, I don't think, I don't think so. They have acquired a lot of, you know, studios for the IP and stuff. They made a lot of deals and just throughout the years, they've had some hits and like a lot of other gaming publishers, they found the ones that have a sticky fan base that gamers like, and they've kept investing in them we'll talk about the future game development because they're in a bit of a weird spot right now but that that's for the second half of the show and yes the links to that podcast if you're interested which kind of goes through a three-part series about two hours in total about the history of ubisoft yeah we'll have that in the newsletter um all right i'll hit industry and competition fairly simple for the video game industry it's quite large and quite diverse. Um, it's estimated that this industry did about $178 billion in USD in revenue in 2021. That is really expected to grow to about $250 billion by 2025. However, in 2022, the industry is expected to actually contract slightly as of this writing uh, due to the COVID-19 consumer spending hangover. A lot of people spent money on games when they were locked inside. Um, but the industry is expected to get back on track in 2023. So from an industry level perspective, there'll be a lot of reports out there about that kind of something to track. It's not the best indicator for looking at a specific company because for example, in 2023, the call of duty game won't be releasing for the first time that year in a long time. And that could lose a few billion dollars in spending for that year, which could impact the growth of the industry. However, that has no effect on Ubisoft. It could actually benefit them because gamers might be looking for something else. So yeah, I, I, I honestly, and in, 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 for gaming, I look at it on a case-by-case basis. 
yeah, there is some tie to the console cycle still, um, just in that, you know, when people buy a new PlayStation, and I believe, I forget where I read this, but I believe a lot more Ubisoft sales come from the PlayStation um, than the Xbox. Don't quote me on that, but I, I, I thought I read that. Somewhere. Well, yeah, yeah. PlayStation is larger. So, yeah. And they, uh, but when you buy a brand new PlayStation, you also pick up a few games. So there can be some benefit to Ubisoft anytime there's sort of an upgrade cycle. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, and that's also having impacting on 2022. Uh, there's some consoles. The chip shortage is impacting the consoles, uh, the ability for PlayStation and Xbox, the two big consoles, to get uh, their stuff out the door. So if people aren't getting their consoles, they're not going to buy a game. That can affect the industry as well. I'll give some notes on the different segments of the gaming market. I don't have VR, but you know, maybe in a few years, people will have numbers on that. Uh, the size of the video game console market is expected to be about $37 billion. And then the size of the PC video game market is also approximately $37 billion. So PC and console are two fairly, you know, very large industries. They're lower growth, though. And then the size of the mobile video game market is around $100 billion and has been the vast majority of the growth for the last decade. We'll see what happens with the new consoles that are, you know, really high tech now with the PS5 and the Xbox series, whatever they're calling them. Then uh, they always have the strange names. But the mobile market is a bit different because a lot of that growth, yes, there was North American growth and European growth, but a lot of the mobile market growth has been from emerging places uh, that might be a little bit poor than North America and Europe, like Southeast Asia, um, China, although that, you know, they're kind of an insulated market, Latin America, stuff like that, because consoles are expensive and a lot of people have access to smartphones and that's kind of why that's proliferated so much now when we look at competitors they mainly operate ubisoft does in the console and pc market like ryan mentioned so the big competitors include microsoft slash activision blizzard if you haven't read activision blizzard the maker of call of duty and then some of the fantasy games like diablo world of warcraft overwatch is getting bought by microsoft so they're kind of a combined competitor for ubisoft right now there's electronic arts there's take two interactive which has the games red dead redemption and grand theft auto that are competitors in some fashion to assassin's creed for those kind of you know core gamers the people that like to game a lot for those story mode franchises there's the embracer group which is probably competing a lot with acquisitions they're buying up a ton of gaming studios and trying to be a conglomerate in that regard there's tencent which has bought they're the chinese video game company they're really a multinational tech giant but they're a huge acquirer of uh, video game companies they're a competitor as well because you know you're looking for studios to buy um but they're also a partner which is kind of strange because when someone has to and wants to enter the Chinese market, which is a gigantic gaming market, you have to partner with a local company. Uh, it's the benefit and the restrictions of the Chinese market. I, Ubisoft has a partnership with Tencent. Doesn't seem like it's gone that well, but that's who they have, they're working with to go into the Chinese market. Then there's a bunch of smaller gaming studios. I mean, anyone can really start a gaming studio. You got to have experience, I guess. But any experienced professional in the industry can start a small studio and start producing games. So. The competition, you know, there's these giant publishers, but it's really just competing for consumers' time. All right, let's move to management and ownership. It's like Ryan mentioned, the, the company's been run and loosely controlled in various ways by the Guimal brothers since the beginning, with all five of them still the company in some capacity. The most important is Yves, which is spelled Y-V-E-S, if you want to research him. He is the chairman and CEO and has been leading the company for 35 years. So really. 
it's him. He's there. He's in charge. He's the chairman and the CEO. So he has a lot of control here. Executive compensation, as you might expect here, and we go into compensation, it's way too complicated. Um, as always, there's so many metrics. And as, as you might expect, they have a base, annual bonus, and then equity incentives, like a lot of companies have these days. Long-term variable compensation is based on total shareholder return versus the NASDAQ index. That's 60% of the weighting. There's also a metric of growth in monthly active users, which has 20% of the weighting. And then the other 20% is a reduction in carbon intensity. Again, it's really hard to, (laughs) I have to read these things like three times to kind of get the understanding because they're one in like legalese stuff in these SEC filings. Um, But I guess, how would you describe this? Basically, if they're, they get paid if their total shareholder return is better than the NASDAQ index. And then also some of their long-term incentives are based on growth and MAUs. So users on their games and then reduction in carbon intensity, which really doesn't make sense for a gaming company, but I guess that's fine. It's only 20% of the compensation. Okay. One of their performance metrics is, as you mentioned, reduction in carbon intensity. Games going online, game sales becoming predominantly digital in in and of itself reduces the carbon intensity. Yeah. I mean, so at least they're directly, literally yeah, yeah. being paid for, I mean, obviously they have to develop the software to, to sell it digitally, but they're, I mean, they're, they're, they're getting performance metrics basically for just being a byproduct of the industry. Yeah. And uh, like I have this written here, I don't really care about any of these metrics as a potential investor in the business. Uh, so it, it was a bit of a down downer to see that they're getting paid on these things that really don't drive like, yeah, okay. Shareholder returns are the long-term are what you want, but they're also not hitting these yeah, true. metrics. I, I mean, they're, yeah, they're not, they're not hitting the they're share- not getting paid much. Well, yeah, the stock hasn't done, hasn't done well recently, but again, like, short-term price movements aren't really how I want my executives to get paid. And by short-term, I mean like yearly or maybe, you know, two to three year price movements. I want them to get paid if the business is generating consistent cash flow. Didn't like that. Now, if we move to their annual variable compensation, it's a bit better. They're based on non-IFRS and IFRS is just kind of the, the gap. But for international, I think it's I forget what it stands for, but it's international financial something. Reporting something. standards. Yeah, reporting standards, I'm guessing. Yeah. So it's based on non-IFRS, which is their non-GAAP, essentially EBIT. And that's 60% of the weighting. And then net digital bookings are 20%, which is great. Those two I like. And then quality of life at work is the other 20%, which is kind of a fake one. Um, a little bit better, but still, again, they're really strange metrics here to be paid on. Didn't really enjoy that. However, if we look at their total compensation, it's pretty low. Like their board of director compensation was totaled at 640,000 euros last fiscal year or only 0.03% of revenue. So pretty insignificant. However, I saw the Guimau brothers got paid as board members, which feels a bit greedy. Don't like that. Um, Then if we look at annual executive compensation, it was only 2.4 million euros. So not a large percentage of overall revenue either. There was no egregious pay that I saw, although the target metrics, like I mentioned, are strange. And it was actually a bit concerning to see how little some of the other executives, I mean, Yves, I think I'm saying that right. Uh, he gets paid a good amount, but some of the other smaller executives that they listed there, I, I honestly want like, 
it was pretty insignificant what they paid. I, I wish they maybe got paid more. They maybe they get a little bit better incentives. I mean, you know, it's it's we sometimes complain about the executives, at, especially in American companies that get paid like twenty million a year, forty million a year, and you know, it's really really high. These ones are pretty low. You want them to I care guess, about their work. Exactly. I mean, there's a good balance. You want somebody to get paid fairly for the, the business they have, not overpaid, not underpaid. Um, but maybe I was looking at that wrong. Um, but I don't think so. I looked at it a few times. Overall, though, if we're looking at this, what all it comes down to is the Guimau brothers. They still own a sizable chunk of Ubisoft. They are the executive. They have board seats. They are the executive team or at least Yves is the chairman and the CEO, and they will benefit if the share price goes up over time. Another note, they've actually fought off multiple takeover bids throughout the decades. I think this is an important note because it shows that the Guimont brothers want to have control of this business. The EA was kind of being sneaky with them. They took a stake in the company in the 2000s. Vivendi wanted to buy them in 2016. And then recent, there have been rumors of takeover chatter that they shut down and said they didn't want to do. Now, as the brothers age, um, oh gosh, I think they're in their 60s. Sounds about right. Yeah, given when they founded it, that that does sound right. It is plausible that they will will be looking to sell the company eventually, but it's unclear what they want to do because they really seem to want to retain control of this business. Now, if we look at the shareholder uh, table that I I laid out here, I don't want to list off everything, but basically the Guimont brothers on a consolidated basis, have 21.8% of the voting power and 15.4% of the ownership. So they do not have majority voting power, but they do have a good chunk in this thing. So as Ubisoft's share price rises or fall, that really you know impacts their wealth. And if we look at the public float, it is at 79% of the economic rights and 74.8% of the voting power. So if someone takes a sizable stake here, there could be some takeover speculation, some activist potential. That was kind of the big takeaway I had. Um, all right, Ryan, do you want to hit earnings? Yeah, so they report on, I, I guess I should just mention that their financial reporting being a French company is a little different than a US-based company. So there might- A little know, annoying, as I might say, the SEC, whatever. Let's get some SEC standardization over there. Yeah, and so just I would just focus on the- annual report. They do give updates on sales on a quarterly basis, but there's not a whole lot of color there. So their 2022 results are going to be what I talk about. So $2.1 billion. Wait, wait, wait. Before when that that ended in March, they have a fiscal year that ends in March, right? Yeah. So they've had one quarter in 2020. That would be 2023 fiscal year. So they've had their one quarter ends. This is one quarter removed. Um, but their 2022 results, $2.1 billion in revenue. That was minus 4% year over year. And then bookings are quite similar for them. So there isn't quite as large of a discrepancy between bookings and revenue as you'd have for uh, some more in-game purchase focused businesses like EA or Activision Blizzard or even Take-Two. Um, and then they have 80, 87% gross margins, really strong. Those have been trending upwards as sales have become increasingly digital. Um, and then they had $241 million in operating income. Uh, operating income probably isn't a perfect figure because they do have some interest expense that they pay um, uh, sort of below that uh, on, on debt that they have. And then they had 700, roughly $700 million in operating cash flow that was down um, 26% year over year. However, they have 
a fair amount of depreciation, which is a non-cash charge that gets added back. And then they actually do you want to talk about how they expense and change uh, convert operating cash flow to their free cash flow? Yeah. I mean, just unlike maybe some of the American companies, they will consider their game development as capital expenditure. So they're going to have high depreciation, but their operating cash flow is going to look strong. However, they're going to be treated as more as a quote unquote capital intensive business. So oper- I would look at free cash flow because they're going to have high de- game development costs each year. If we look at last fiscal year that ended March of this year, they had $856 million, or excuse me, 856 million euros. Although euro to dollar parity right now is equal. So it's not really that big of a difference. Um, yeah, so 856 million euros last year, 753 million euros the year before. I'll probably make a chart now that I now that we're talking about this, I'll make a chart of their internal development cost to see how large it is because compared to the business what, what do you have the number here 2.1 billion in revenue last year i mean it's sizable it's like oh, almost just under half their expenses yeah or, so or half their revenue yeah i mean it's high and that's what what do you have here negative 282 yeah. million dollars in free cash flow it's way worse than their operating cash so, flow line yeah and here's an here's a great example of show me your incentives i'll show you the results kind of thing where they don't get paid on cash generation. It's on non-IFRS EBIT. So yeah, there and you go. So here's your free cash flow for the last five years. You you put this down, and anyone can anyone that's listening to this can easily go check it out on our uh, uh, Google Sheet here. But it's they generated a hundred, roughly a hundred million dollars in cash in 2018. 300 million in 2019, negative 200 million in 2020, 70 million in 2021, and negative 300 million roughly uh, last year. So, in total, over the last five years, they generated about $20 million, which is basically flat for the size of this business. Yeah. So, it's really underwhelming cash generation from Ubisoft over the last five years. Now, you could probably argue, especially over the last three, that it's been very much a they're in a yeah they're in a game development phase but aren't they always i yeah it's interesting because they have been talking about that and if you look at kind of the share price you can see that i think investors have grown impatient because they keep saying just wait just wait just wait no no we're making the games we're building these games and yeah they do have some huge games we'll talk about the avatar game but uh, I don't know. There, there's just some indications. Yeah, like Activision, Blizzard, EA, even Take Two, which is investing a ton in GTA Six, uh, has generated more consistently better cash than uh, Ubisoft. And I don't know. They're supposed to be one of these scaled publishers as well. And then I'll, I'll dive into the balance sheet here. Um, as far as liabilities go, they've got some really low rate, low interest debt uh, about. $2 billion in total debt. Um, small percentage of that is uh, current, but about $1.6 billion of that debt. So, uh, I don't know, the majority, 75%, uh, comes in the form of three different bonds. They've got, and they're almost all split equal. So, they got $486 million in zero interest convertible bonds. Those are due in 2024. $500 million in five year, 1.3% interest bonds due in 2023 and then 600 million in seven year less than one percent so 0.9 percent interest bonds due in 2027 very low rates across the board all fixed thank rates you too, yeah thank, thank you europe yeah yeah so they uh i mean it looks 
like they did a good job sort of cap the both those were issued i believe all those were issued between 2018 and 2020 so they kind of uh I, I guess i'm not really up to date on the european interest rates but it seems like they capitalized on sort of the low rate environment um and then in terms of assets and cash flow as well uh about 1.3 billion dollars in cash and bank balances which is basically just cash cash equivalents and then 200 million in short-term investments so uh, almost as much cash as they have in bonds um so assuming that they're able to generate some level of cash flow over the next five years i think they're gonna be all right paying paying those uh that debt off yeah pretty uh, uh pretty good balance sheet not 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 bad yeah pretty clean all around not not a whole lot to report as far as like like it's not going to make or break any thesis here um yeah there's no balance sheet concerns it's i mean they're already spending a ton on studios and they're not burning too much cash the you know it's not they're not going to burn through all this cash and they'll be able to pay that back hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right. You want to talk valuation? Yeah, let's hit that quick. You know, again, we'll have a link to the dynamic valuation that'll update. Uh, actually, no. This one, uh, Google Finance API does not, sorry to say use the European company. So I had to hard code it, but that's not a big deal. All right. Market cap is about $5.6 billion. Enterprise value is slightly higher at about $6.27 billion. So they're from an enterprise value perspective, a lot smaller than Take-Two, Activision, Blizzard, and EA. Uh, what is Take-Two is about 20 billion, EA is about 40 billion, and Activision is getting bought out at about 60 billion. So those are significantly higher. From, from an enterprise value perspective. Now, if we look at their valuation ratios or multiples, their enterprise value to operating income is 15.4. But since their free cash flow negative, the free cash flow is negative 22.2. Really, I mean, the operating inc- income one can be kind of helpful, but the multiples are not that useful for valuing a video game publisher. They're going to have lumpy revenue. They got this new Assassin's Creed thing coming out. Unfortunately, they're actually announcing that on September 10th which is right after we're recording this. But if you're listening um, and you're interested in this company, check out that announcement and they have that avatar game that we're going to talk about. I mean, you got you to kind of look at the game lineup and look at what their cash flow could be over the next three to five years. It could paint a much better or grimmer story for Ubisoft this decade. Uh, but yeah, valuation is kind of tough. Really, really hard to put any numbers here. All right, let's move to anecdotal evidence, Ryan. What'd you have? This is a good one, I guess, company yeah. to have because you can kind of see what gamers like, dislike about the company. I have not played 
Well, I played 2048, which is like one of their smaller games. I played <laughs> yeah. Just Dance, I think. Oh, they, that's a good Yeah, they have that one. They had that, that. That was big on the Wii. And uh, yeah, it's it's a decent. Oh, it's a small franchise for them, but it's a fun one. Yeah, I maybe have played Mario and Rabbids, but the, the bulk of their revenue I've, I've never sort of interfaced with. However, I watched a few <clears throat> long YouTube videos on the evolution of two of their titles far cry and assassin's creed and it's been cool to watch how the game not only the graphics have gotten much much better so it's cool to see like the actual brand evolve with the industry um but just to see the different story modes and the different storytelling that goes on in these games they've done a pretty good job i think capturing an audience um with with both brands and assassin's creed Maybe it's just me, but I find it really like a really interesting concept. The actual game itself. You're basically yeah. this like spy that gets sent back. Yes. Yeah, spy, but like, like sci- back in a time. Yeah. You're like a sci-fi, not an alien, but you have like a superpower thing and you can explore all these. It's like giving the game studio an excuse to explore this vast array of historical areas. And I think yeah. the next one they rumored Again, the official announcements haven't really come out. I rumor to be in India. And again, yeah. that's like, cool, you're an assassin in India in some famous historical period. Yeah, and like I think the last one, Valhalla, was... Uh, that was the last one, right? Valhalla? Yeah. Was That was like Viking era, if I'm not mistaken. And so there's basically... Just there's been a lot of them, though. Revolutionary <laughs> War was a really popular one, that time frame. Yeah, I actually played that one when I was a kid. The I mean, it's a great it's a good franchise. It's my anecdotal evidence. It's a great franchise, but it seems to be a bit mismanaged because a lot of the gamers have been kind of. Yeah, they've been upset about the quality of some of the new games and. They're upset about well, they're upset about other things like the NFTs, which we may talk about, and a lot of the microtransactions that they're trying to upsell people within the Assassin's Creed game in an unhealthy manner, but it just seems a bit more mismanaged than say some of the rockstar games that come out. And I'm not saying rockstar. I'm saying rockstar studio games, which would be grand theft auto and red dead redemption. Assassin's Creed should kind of be up in that echelon, but they haven't reached that yet. And it might be because they've been releasing too many games too quickly because if they had a grand theft auto game every year, I think people will get tired of it. Um, and maybe they were they were doing that with Assassin's Creed. I just don't think that was the right move. However, another anecdotal one here, they have the Avatar slash Pandora game, and Avatar being the Disney slash Fox movie that James Cameron's making. Um, they're having the sequel coming out soon. I forget exactly when, but they're making a game to go along with that. It's like exploring Pandora, Age of Frontier, something. I forget the exact name, but it, it, that game has a ton of potential to become the next big franchise for Ubisoft if they execute well on this. And they can ride really the major movie releases from Disney because they're releasing an Avatar game, or excuse me, Avatar movie once every two years. Whenever they release the second one, they have like three or four more planned. If that franchise garners a lot of interest from, I don't know, movie fans, that could translate into game sales as well. Although, again, a lot of that's speculative. All right, let's move to future growth opportunities. Ryan... What do you have? I mean, it's gaming, so it's- yeah, it's really hard to like. I'm not going to be able to predict their next big like franchise that's not one they already have. So basically, just iterating on their existing brands, and then also in terms of sort of 
bigger picture, I think their games, especially their console-based games, are going to become more accessible to more households over time, especially if cloud gaming um, starts to see some adoption soon. And I've kind of been looking at Xbox because we're going to be talking about them, I think, in a week. Um, Next week, yep. That's next week's episode. They have... They are close, I think, to kind of piecing the whole cloud gaming universe together. If if they're able to do that, that presents a much bigger customer pool for uh, for Ubisoft. And so then then it really isn't even on them. They just got to make the games, and they're going to have some level of better adoption. So basically, skating where the puck goes um, as the industry evolves, being kind of having your IP front and center for. Uh, gamers to play and then also if vr ends up being sort of a the the form of gameplay i feel like these i feel like ubisoft's brands lend themselves really well to vr gameplay like pretending to be that assassin or whatever i I think that would end up i think that would be very successful in vr um so i don't know just kind of skating where the puck goes there isn't a whole lot i can say here aside from like making good games yeah, and my future growth opportunity is just the resurgence of the Assassin's Creed franchise. It was this game was really well, or not was the not game. It, the franchise was really well loved, um, maybe five to ten years ago, but it's kind of gotten people have been a little upset about uh, the game, and I think it really had the potential and still does to reach the same level as a Grand Theft Auto or Red Dead Redemption, and you know the quality of the storytelling and then the open world gameplay. However, you know, it's kind of fallen flat in recent years. It hasn't taken that next step to become kind of a billion dollar bookings franchise, which some of these other big titles from publishers have been, which again, Grand Theft Auto, maybe some of the sports franchises like FIFA, they haven't executed as well on that. Um, We're recording this on September 5th and the company, or excuse me, Ubisoft is announcing their updates for the franchise on September 10th. So... uh, it's their most important franchise, so it'll, it'll be interesting to watch that because they've been talking about revamping it. And I believe from the rumors I read, again, we don't know for sure, they might try to make it more like Grand Theft Auto where you have a premium game, but there's this big online world that's a lot better. However, it, it just takes a lot of execution. So we'll see. All right. Highlights and lowlights. Ryan, what did you like and dislike about this business? Uh. Well, the franchises are all pretty unique, um, and I think we've kind of mentioned this before. But having brands that people love and and really finding that niche allows being in that position in the gaming industry allows them to adapt pretty well. If the landscape changes at all, if it moves to cloud gaming, um, the, or if it moves to VR, the, having the IP, you're going to be able to kind of skate where the puck goes, as I mentioned earlier. Second one, industry tailwinds. Um, Increasing amount of games being sold digitally helps their margins. It helps executive compensation a little bit because they can, uh, there's less of a carbon footprint. And um, also just as, as the industry grows, more people are going to be able to access these games. Both those are big tailwinds for Ubisoft. Uh, and then third, and this is one we haven't really talked about, given the recent fascination with media companies buying video games or video game studios i think this is a potential acquisition candidate um netflix could be big here 
I would never buy something because I think it could be like some potential acquisition candidate unless I like had a really good feeling it would be. But I can give you a floor. I'll give you a floor here, right? Yeah. I just question how it sounds like the Guillemont brothers aren't going to be that inclined to sell. Yeah, I do think that is a downside here. I don't. I'd be much. And we'll get to this when we get to the end. I'd be much more interested in this company if we ever saw them step away. Because they just seem to run it for themselves, and they bought and they re, uh, acquired studios that one of the other brothers started. To uh, Ubisoft has acquired like a studio called GameLoft that one of the other bro- other brothers started, which again feels greedy. There's a, just a couple of red flags with the the brothers here, and but they don't. The, here, the other thing is they don't have control. So if someone actually wants to acquire them, the board could vote, you know, in favor. Yeah. And then low lights for me, I think uh, compared to other publishers, Ubisoft's actual games don't feel optimized for in-game purchases or microtransactions. And you've seen the resentment from their customer bases or their fan bases when microtransactions were kind of pushed. And so that to me, that's fine. It's just a different kind of business and it it becomes less software. Like that's one of the big perks of kind of EA and Activision lately is they're able, the shelf life of those games extends well beyond just the initial game purchase. And so if it's just the initial game purchase, it's a much riskier business because you kind of spend all this money developing the game. And then if it doesn't hit, you, you've, you've, kind of taking this big risk and it's kind of a swing and a miss as opposed to like having success and then being able to kind of juice that over the year and then recycle it and do it again. So yeah, I agree with that. And now we may be saying this and then five days after they might be announcing an entirely opposite strategy. So we'll see again that and whatever they're, they're they've said, like on September 10th, we're doing the future of Assassin's Creed. So that could mean a transition to more of this live services stuff, but it's harder to execute on that than say a sports franchise to get you know, yeah. people to get those microtransactions. I mean, the Opal- so much about the brands that they have being story focused, like following a plot. Whereas Fortnite, there is no plot. You are getting on every day and it's changing and you're paying to, you know, be a part of that. Yeah. The, I think people have been upset that the like Fortnite does well from what I've read because the the microtransactions aren't like if you you can't pay to win and people were upset that there was some pay to win stuff within Assassin's Creed although you know counterpoint though Grand Theft Auto I think is fair you know not exactly the same but fairly similar to Assassin's Creed and I, I don't know I, I feel like an Assassin's Creed could potentially like do well on kind of an you know an Assassin's Creed online open world type thing but yeah, they haven't done that yet, and they haven't. No, you know, people haven't been receptive to that type of stuff. But you know, could change. It could change. Yeah, I guess just my overall, my overarching low light is that this is a very lumpy business. It's not as software like as a lot of other development studios, and then it does not feel shareholder friendly to like outside shareholders. And if you're not going to run a company for the outside shareholders, that is fine. Your employees are probably very happy. Your customers are maybe very happy, but I'm going to look elsewhere to put my money. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> they, if they control it and no one cares, fine. But yeah, we're not going to invest. Uh, my highlights, I mean, you know, the quality of the Assassin's Creed franchise is high. Uh, you know, they had good ingenuity coming up with this entertainment IP. I mean, 
It's really it was one of the best moves from a gaming studio in the past two decades was inventing this. I think it could be a billion dollar plus bookings a year franchise, which again is just revenue. Bookings and revenue are fairly interchangeable for these companies. I, I really think it could get there if they, you know, execute. I think it could be like the Call of Duty for Activision or the FIFA or Apex Legends for EA or the Grand Theft Auto for Take Two Interactive. But it's not yet. It hasn't hit that next level. And then second highlight is the Avatar slash Pandora game. I think that has a ton of potential. You could see easy open world access there. If they really hit that off, that could be a big, big seller. People love that movie. Never really understood why that was just such a big movie, but people loved it. Um, you know, new franchises are difficult to build, but this is based on an already existing popular movie and they have, you know, they're making the game for them. So that could be huge for them. Um, again, I, that that is speculative though. And they're clearly pouring a ton of resources into that game. So there's a big risk on whether, you know, hit or miss, but if it hits, it's big. Now, lowlights, um, we talked about the mismanagement of Assassin's Creed. Uh, we talked about inconsistent cash flow generations. We talked about the Gimo brothers making moves that we don't really like that might not be shareholder friendly. I guess I don't like stretching the resources too thin across, you know, what are supposed to be these AAA titles. I am more in favor of the way that Rockstar Studio does it, where they, you know, kind of invest in this one title with all their employees at one time. They spend years doing it, but it seems like Ubisoft, um, I mean, it's fine to have a lot of experimental indie games, but I don't think it's optimal to have more than one to two big titles in development at one time. I mean, why do you think Rockstar's games have such critical and commercial success with the fantastic reviews. It's because they have that focus. I worry that Ubisoft doesn't have that and they kind of just seemed a bit more scatterbrained to me. And then third, if we look at their revenue per employee numbers, it's actually starkly, starkly worse than any of the other ones. I have this chart that will be in the newsletter. I mean, just looking at the last year in 2022, let me just pull it up. Ubisoft's revenue per employee was $102,000. If you look at Activision Blizzards, $898,000. If you look at Electronic Arts, $541,000. Yeah. Just, I mean, what, what's going on here? <laughs> like, that, that's just, that's maybe my biggest little bit. I mean, what is going on there? Lastly, we haven't talked about this. They have made investments in Web3 and blockchain gaming. I mean, it's clearly a dumb idea and it has angered a ton of Ubisoft's fans. I mean, really, really angered them. They're actually saying that Ubisoft, now people have disliked Electronic Arts because of their microtransaction stuff. Um, Electronic Arts actually got sued. Uh, I forget what country it was for doing these microtransactions, but yeah, they said that Ubisoft... Like the loot box approach. Yeah, there, yeah. people are getting sued. Uh, the, people are upset about that for a time, and people are now saying that Ubisoft is the new EA that people are really disliking them. And for Ubisoft, they don't have a monopoly on sports franchises. So, you know, that might bode more trouble for them. And especially if they're investing in these Web3 and blockchain gaming stuff, that just seems incredibly risky to me. I don't mind if we have an executive that says on a conference call, we're exploring NFTs or Web3. But when you're actually investing in these companies and wasting the money, not wait, well, I mean, pretty clearly wasting the money. Uh, it's just not a good look for me. All right, bull case, Ryan, what do you think for Ubisoft? 
it, it could go. I don't know. It's it's such a like a wide ranging bull case because it could be like flat bookings for the next two years, and then like an Assassin's Creed game hits and bookings are up fifty percent, or the Avatar game <laughs> hits. Yeah, right. And so, I think, I guess, sort of a realistic bull case is that over the long term, let's say ten years, um all these brands that they already have maintain sort of the the fan bases that they've cultivated thus far. And then they also kind of grow incrementally as the industry grows. So as more households get access to their games, they, they just basically adopt that with a whole lot of, without a whole lot of incremental expenses required to do so. Um, and then maybe they, they catch fire with a new franchise or something like that, but that's hard to predict. So I think if they're able to kind of grow within that, um, within sort of the industry overall there you're probably looking at high single digits to maybe even good success would be low double digit annual uh bookings growth um and then assuming they're able to do i don't know 20 i would think it, the thing is it's so hard to tell because the development cycles are so lumpy in terms of like costs compared to the bookings because you yeah but bookings front bookings growth is vital because there is operating leverage here so let's incremental say margins out yeah. to I don't know 15 to 20 percent cash flow margins. Um there's probably a path to like a billion dollars in free cash flow. And at I think the current enterprise value is what six billion dollars. It's if, pretty cheap, pretty cheap, yeah. And we're talking euros here. Like we're saying dollars, but it is euros. I mean, they're very similar on the cha- exchange rate, but you're it's gonna euros. get if they get to a if there's a world where they're generating a billion dollars in like true free cash flow, you're gonna make money here if it's in the next five years. Yeah. Unless I mean, they just dilute the crap out of shareholders. Yeah. And they historically I haven't had the shares outstanding here. Let me get over the chart for a little reference. Flat. It has been relative uh, up a little bit, but not not too bad. Not too bad. Yeah. All right. My bull case is I mean, you know, the new Assassin's Creed strategy, whatever it is, is is a success. And they can, you know, elevate the franchise across console PC in the same way other publishers have done. And combined with that, if the Avatar Avatar Pandora game is a huge success, and we didn't even talk about this, they had they got a deal with Lucas, uh, whatever it's called, Lucasfilm Games or whatever it is, the Star Wars games, uh, and they're making those right now. I don't think they're expected to come out until 2025, but they do some of those. They do well. Again, like Ryan says, you know, you can get bookings closer to $5 billion eventually because of all the development games they have on here. You've seen other publishers of similar magnitude uh, getting into that level for bookings. And, you know, the operating leverage is finally achieved. You can get that cash flow. It'd be really hard to lose money if they can get if they start obtaining operating leverage given their bookings level. Now, bear case, uh, Ryan, what do you think? <sighs> Basically, what they're just, currently doing <laughs> yeah, yeah if they just like if they're spread too thin if they're kind of just hiring tons and tons of people and they can't seem to get like a real hit game again um I, you know there's I, I i don't like this company and this is going to be my more or less interested but like the the bear case is that there's like this big competition for attention right now, and they aren't doing enough to kind of regarner the fan base that they once had and the position and the market share they once had. And so, um, I don't know, several consecutive game flops that, that to me is a potential bear case. And then it also, if they start to lose that fan base, 
I think the floor of an acquisition potentially coming in starts to go away because that's why someone would acquire them is because, oh, we can go ahead and juice this for more cash and we can remanage this business properly. Yeah. I mean, Assassin's Creed, Far Cry, I mean, Assassin's Creed is the big one. You could see a strategic acquirer seeing that and saying, that's worth $6 billion to us if we can utilize that correctly, which... But but if the fan base goes away and it kind of dies out and uh, it continues to lose popularity, I mean, then it goes away. Then that floor is down. This is kind of maybe a little long. This is like way out, but um, I could see a world where Embracer Group somehow ends up owning some of these, some interesting. Of these brands. Yeah, interesting. At least, yeah, I mean, uh, similar. My bear case is kind of similar. They continue to mismanage Assassin's Creed and they're continually inefficient with capital allocation decisions. Again, the employee count versus what their bookings are, um, investing in Web3 companies, and then you know they're alienating their fan base at the same time. If they're, people are calling Ubisoft the EA, like they're now the new EA and people hate it. A lot of people dislike EA, but they still buy the games because uh, you know it's the only way to play a football game. But that's not the same with Ubisoft. I think the bear case is a lot lower. Yeah, more or less interested, Ryan. Less. I am less interested. And this actually, I don't want to say it soured me on the gaming industry because I think the gaming industry overall will grow, but it reminds me that most companies in the gaming industry, I would not want to own. And they, it just, there's just such a lack of predictability around the cash flow. Not only is it lumpy, but you just have no idea how some games are going to be received. You don't know as as an outside shareholder, you don't know what the games are going to look like. It's really hard to predict the cash flow for businesses. And, like and if you these. and if you can't trust management, yeah. And then on top of it, yeah. Management. If you have that unpredictability, unpredictability, you kind of need to have the trust in management. I mean, we clearly don't here. I'm going to say more interested, but not. I would never buy this if the Guimon brothers are still in charge. If they left and things kind of fell apart even more, this could be because here, look, people could have said a lot of the same things about Take Two Interactive before the Strauss Zelenik team came in. Now, if Ubisoft is kind of, I mean, I could see a re- yeah. it trading really cheaply. They bring in someone like a Strauss Zelenik. Obviously, they there's no guarantee that they would execute the same way that Take Two Interactive did. But given the brands here. Given the franchises, I, I, I'm more interested, but no way I'm buying this right now. For reference, for everyone who's kind of, for, for anyone, anyone listening who's worried about the price or how it's done historically since, I want to say 2008, so almost 15 years, stock is up about 80%. So it's severely underperformed the market. Yeah. Yeah. And Ubisoft's big because they've made a lot of acquire acquisitions. Um Recently, it hasn't really done that well, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, the last three years, it's down 39%. I mean, yeah, clearly people are upset because the cash flow hasn't been there. They've been saying they're going to invest in these new games, and they keep getting delayed. They actually love talking on the conference calls, love saying that. They're like, well, the industry's in a bad spot right now because everyone's getting game delays. And I'm like, all I'm thinking is, uh, I don't know, we follow a lot of other companies that are still releasing games. So I, and the, I think it's just yeah. a year problem and you have more employees than every other company. So what's the deal? Yeah, they are like eight or 10 times smaller than all these other companies with substantially more employees. And they they have twice as many employees as Activision Blizzard. 
the uh, well, maybe Activision has been losing plenty of them, but the uh, yeah, but still, I mean, I would much, I'd much rather invest in Activision Blizzard than Ubisoft, even with the problems. I mean, they both have. We didn't even mention Ubisoft's uh, sexual assault and allegation issues. They've had very similar stuff, maybe not as egregious as Activision Blizzard, but they had similar stuff, which can really hurt morale, get people to quit, which, you know, obviously. Yeah, it does not. It really does not entice me. And it's really hard to predict, like, okay, if this was managed by someone else, like maybe I'd reassess once there's like new people that came in or new management group that came in, but I'm not going to take it on the chance that someone else could come in. Yeah, exactly. You have to wait until that happens. But I think the interesting thing is that if someone came in, there is that possibility that the stock would be trading absurdly cheap at that moment because the trust would be totally gone. And that's the only reason I'm going to have it on my watch list. But at the current time period, I mean, a lot of things have to change before I'd be interested in buying this thing. All right. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. Let's give it a little tease for those aren't on the Twitter sphere as we know everyone isn't. For the gaming month, here is our schedule. Ubisoft this week, as you're listening. Next week, Xbox. Week after, Capcom, Japanese gaming publisher. Next week after that, Rovio, maker of Angry Birds. And then we're going to be doing our Arch Capital episode on Electronic Arts, explaining why we own that business compared to other ones, kind of as a wrap-up. We're also going to be tossing in a Dropbox episode um, because we do not have an interview this week uh, for an Arch Capital episode. Yeah. Uh, so look forward to that. That'll be only for CCM Plus subscribers as well. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say on this show is not formal advice or recommendation. We are general partners at Arch Capital and clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. 